This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? I'd like to be invisible. I'd glide undetected through the world and every once in a while listen in on some powerful people's conversations. This week we're looking past the ordinary and focusing instead on the extraordinary with four stories from people with superhuman abilities. First up, we meet a woman who carries with her an incredible number of memories from throughout her life. Every morning since January 2004, Rebecca Sharrock crosses off the date on a calendar in her room. Like many people, the 31-year-old uses it to keep track of time, distinguishing the present day from the ones that came before. Unlike many, Sharrock can remember what happened on specific days 5, 10, 15 years ago. What day was it on the 21st of July 2007? A Saturday, Sharrock can recall, when asked. An avid Harry Potter fan, Sharrock remembers her stepdad going to the shops that day to buy a copy of the newly published Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. The sensation of a warm breeze evokes positive experiences from childhood, as does a vocal workshop Sharrock attended at school when she was 13. Coincidentally, on that day in late October in 2003, That's when the US president visited Australia for the first time, she recalls. After we speak, I check this. George Bush Jr. arrived in Australia for his first presidential visit on the 22nd of October 2003. Sharrock remembers her mother watching the news that day. Even though it didn't mean anything to me, him coming here, that memory of the vocal group brings back that whole day, she says. Sharrock, who lives in Brisbane, didn't realise there was anything unusual about her memory until, on the 23rd of January 2011, her parents showed her a TV news story about people with an extraordinary ability to recall events from their own lives. The segment featured Professor Craig Stark, a neurobiology and behaviour researcher at the University of California, Irvine. Stark's lab studies a condition called Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory, or HSAM. Sharrock is one of about 60 known people in the world with a condition. In studies, Stark and his colleagues have asked people to recall memories from a particular day one week earlier, and also longer, one year ago, say, or a decade. People with HSAM are significantly better at recalling both personal and public events, and the exact days and dates on which they occurred. They don't remember everything, Stark says. People with HSAM do forget things, but compared to people with ordinary, episodic memory, it's very, very gradual. Their extraordinary ability to recall lived experiences results from a type of remembering known as episodic memory. People with HSAM don't, however, perform any better at standard laboratory memory tests, such as rote memorization tasks. HSAM was first recognised as a condition in 2006 after American woman Jill Price contacted Dr James McGaw, a collaborator of Starks at UCI. 
Price wrote, Whenever I see a date flash on the television, or anywhere else for that matter, I automatically go back to that day and remember where I was, what I was doing, what day it fell on. Most have called it a gift, but I call it a burden. I run my entire life through my head every day and it drives me crazy. Many people with HSAM describe a similar tendency to revisit days and test their recall of events, Stark says. They describe things like when being young, forgetting something and being really traumatised by it, not wanting to have that happen again. Some structure their days using calendars because they are able to remember the experience of marking off a specific date. I'll continue to have a calendar in my room until my last day of life, Sharak says. I fear that I won't know the exact date otherwise. Blurring days together, the possibility of that happening just scares me. To a person with average memory, Perhaps Sharrock's fear feels something like the discompobulating sensation when a friend reminisces about a shared experience, of which you have no recollection. Stark says, One of the things we don't really know on these folks is how much of it is an inherent biological thing that makes their memory better in this domain. His lab looked at the brains of people with HSAM, but didn't find major differences in structures important for memory, such as the hippocampus and amygdala. We found some things in terms of the morphology and in terms of some functional conductivity of the brain that were actually more consistent with OCD than anything else, Stark says, adding that people with HSAM also score highly on scales for obsessive-compulsive traits. While having HSAM can come in handy, Sharrock's mum checks with her whether purchases are still under warranty. It also has its downsides. I need to have distractions such as noise and light around me to get to sleep. If everything's quiet, memories just flash into my mind and that keeps me awake, says Sharrock. For Sharrock, who also has OCD, anxiety and autism, it makes bad memories difficult to deal with. If I'm remembering something negative, my emotions of that experience will come back, she says. Sometimes people will say that I'm just deliberately not letting go and I'm just, like, dwelling on the negatives in my life. It's awful to be a medical exception because very few people understand what you're going through and there just aren't many treatments designed for it. Remembering this way just seems so normal to me. That was... It's Awful to Be a Medical Exception, The Woman Who Cannot Forget by Donna Liu. The reader was Emily Elise. You know that feeling you get sometimes when you see someone and you think you recognise their face, but you can't quite remember where from? Well, imagine if you could never forget any face you ever saw, even briefly. That's the world of a super recogniser. As a child, Yenny's CEO often surprised her mother by pointing out a stranger in the grocery store, remarking it was the same person they passed on the street a few weeks earlier. Likewise, when they watched a movie together, Sio would often recognise extras who appeared fleetingly in other films. Sio says her mother never thought this was anything special and simply assumed she had a particularly observant daughter. 
CO2 was unaware that others didn't share her love of the private game she played, where she'd spot a person on a bus or the street and then flick through the vast catalogue of faces she kept in her head, trying to place where she'd seen them before. It's always been quite fun for me, she says, especially as a child. I remember just really enjoying looking at different faces. It was only as she got older and started using social media that CO became self-conscious of her skill. She says, I would start a new class in uni or I would meet people through social gatherings and I would remember visually what kind of photos I'd seen them in. I'd already be so familiar with them and I'd know in my head, oh, you are that person's sibling or you used to date so-and-so. I also knew it would be really creepy if I said that out loud, so I'd keep it on the down low and just say, oh, nice to meet you. Once, while working at a part-time job at a clothing store when she was at uni, Sio had cause to show her skill. Staff were shown grainy, hard-to-decipher CCTV footage of a habitual shoplifter. The next time this person entered the shop, Sio instantly recognised them and alerted the security guard. I knew I must have some kind of skill, but I still didn't think it was anything special because I just had so many instances like that happen. Until the early 2000s, little scientific attention was paid to whether all humans possess the same ability to recognise faces. According to Dr David White, now a lead investigator at the Face Research Lab at the University of New South Wales, I think intuitively people believe that the way they see the world is the same as others. And I think that scientists had that intuition as well. White first became interested in the field while studying a rare condition called prosopagnosia, when a brain injury leaves someone unable to recognise faces. He was intrigued that while people with this condition couldn't recognise the face of a loved one, they could still recognise other objects. Evidence, he says, that our brains are organised to perform different tasks, like an app on your smartphone. Along with other researchers, White started examining people without brain injury, discovering there is tremendous variation in facial recognition ability. At the very upper end of the performance scale, a cohort of just 1-2% to of the population are super-recognisers. People who can memorise and recall unfamiliar faces even after the briefest glimpse. The underlying cause is still not entirely clear. It's a new field, with only around 20 scientific papers studying super-recognisers. However, it is suspected genetics plays a role because identical twins show similar performance. And it's been shown that cortical thickness, the amount of neurons, in the part of the brain that supports face recognition, is a predictor of superior ability. Recently, White conducted an experiment where he used eye-tracking technology to study how super-recognisers look at faces, discovering they are spreading their gaze more around the face, which suggests they might be painting a more elaborate picture of the face in their mind's eye. Because it's such a rare phenomenon, in 2017 White and his colleagues at UNSW designed a publicly available online screening tool 
to try to unearth the world's best super-recognisers. Sio, then in her mid-twenties, gave it a go. Her score was so high, White invited her to come to Sydney for more testing. With more than 100,000 people now tested, Sio still ranks in the top 50. Over the past decade, security and law enforcement agencies around the world have started recruiting people with superior facial recognition capabilities. London's Metropolitan Police has a special team who examines CCTV footage from crime scenes. In Salisbury, they were used in the investigation into the poisoning of a former Russian spy with the nerve agent Novichok. And several years ago, Queensland Police started identifying super-recognisers in its ranks. A proliferation of private agencies has also sprung up, offering the services of super-recognisers. Sio has no interest in repeating her one crime-fighting moment from her uni days. She's happy with her job as a technician at a pathology lab. She still enjoys looking at faces. The use of face masks during the pandemic is providing a fun challenge. Most of the time, she can still recognise a person even if they're wearing one. And the diagnosis has given her confidence in my abilities. It made me realise, oh yeah, it's not crazy. I must have been right the whole time. It's not that I'm creepy, but my brain is just wired that way. That was I'd Keep It on the Down Low, The Secret Life of a Super Recognizer by Bronwyn Adcock. The reader was Colin Smith. And if you'd like to find out if you could be a super recognizer, you can take UNSW's face test. Just follow the link to the original article on our show's website. Do you know what a squished ant smells like? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry. I've never smelt it either. Only some people can detect the scent of formic acid in ants. Participants in one study compared it to blue cheese and rotten coconut. Next up, we find out more about unusual scents and what it's like being a person with hyperosmia, or to put it simply, a super smeller. Dr. Kreitigarg, an oral surgeon in Melbourne, was in theatre about to commence work on a patient when she told the anaesthetist she could smell sevoflurane. Sevoflurane is the anaesthetic gas used to put and keep patients asleep during surgery. Ingested via a tube that is placed down the throat, in large quantities its bitter smell can be noticeable, but trace amounts are largely indiscernible. No one else in the room could smell it through their masks, but the anaesthetist who'd worked with Garg before and knew of her sensitive nose checked the fit of the tube, discovering a small leak and a need to adjust the seal. It's not unusual for Garg to smell things that others can't. She notices the smell of earth before it's about to rain, and at home with her husband, she's overly prone to discarding food she thinks smells off, often saying to him, it's probably better that you taste and tell me if it's off or not because I might throw it out even without it going off. Growing up in India, she was known in her family as having a super sensitive nose just like her grandmother. 
She'd astonish her mother by coming home from school and being able to describe the precise foods and spices used in the curries cooked in her absence. Certain smells gave her a strong aversion. Even trace amounts of a particular rose fragrance syrup, commonly used in milkshakes in India, made her recoil. The body odour of a private tutor her family had hired to help her with physics was so disconcerting. I couldn't focus at all. I would just try to stop-start my breathing and then I would look at the clock. After a few months, I said to my mum, look, I can't sit, and we had to let him go. While understanding that she has a heightened sense of smell has been a continuous process throughout Garg's life, this year she started becoming more curious about this skill. Working in healthcare in Melbourne, she was regularly tested for COVID-19, but noticed she was also subconsciously running her own early testing system by constantly checking in on her sense of smell. Loss of smell is a symptom of COVID infection. After reading up on the topic, Garg came to the conclusion that she was probably a super-smeller, a rare condition medically known as hyperosmia. Dr. Leah Beauchamp, a neuroscientist at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health in Melbourne, says individual olfactory acuity, our ability to smell, is highly variable and altered by genetics, age, gender, women have a stronger sense of smell, and even mood. Our sense of smell occurs via a complex process where an odour molecule enters the nose and hits a patch of tissue, basically at the place where you get your COVID test, from where electrical impulses travel to various regions within the brain for interpretation. Not a lot is known about those on the outer edges of smelling ability. It's rare and subjective, which makes it difficult to measure. According to Beauchamp, it's theorised that hyperosmia could be biological, It's known that changes in hormones and electrolytes associated with medical differences, such as pregnancy or Lyme diseases, heighten smell sensitivity, and also that it can be learned, a sommelier, for example. One of the most extreme cases of a super smeller to emerge in recent years, now being studied in the UK, is a Scottish woman who noticed a certain musty smell on her husband in the years preceding his diagnosis with Parkinson's disease. It was only once she walked into a support group of people living with Parkinson's that she realised the scent was common among them. Someone with that kind of acuity is basically off the charts, but you do get variability in humans. That's how biology works, says Beauchamp. According to Beauchamp, It's the absence of a sense of smell that offers the most intriguing grounds for research. Smell is a great opportunity for us to access the brain. People think that sense of smell is all about the nose, and the nose is important, obviously, but it really gives us an indication of brain health. The Flory Institute has a number of projects investigating smell deficits including one examining why a cohort of people in Melbourne still have no sense of smell up to 12 months after recovering from COVID. It's unlikely that someone like Garg would ever get or need 
an official diagnosis of hyperosmia. Beauchamp says that unless it is disturbing day-to-day function, they wouldn't need to get it treated. Garg says that simply being aware of her ability is enough for her. I almost feel empowered in some way that I've got this little extra strength or tool. Being a super smeller means she occasionally has to take evasive action, like staying away from a particular group of people because someone's wearing a very strong perfume in a party. It also means navigating intense memories. Unlike other senses, the area of the brain that processes smell directly receives information from the part of the brain associated with memory, the hippocampus. For Garg, a certain damp smell takes her back to the stressful experience of having her house flooded as a child. Conversely, the smell of petrol, which she quite likes, overwhelms her with nostalgia for her childhood in India. There are people who actually come and fill it for you and you just sit in the car with your window down or you're on your two-wheeler and you can smell it with the dust and everything. That was I've Got This Little Extra Strength, The Rare Intense World of a Super Smeller by Bronwyn Adcock. The reader was Carmelina DiGuglielmo. It's often said that artists can see things in the world that the rest of us just can't. For the painter in our next story, this is literally true, and it means that she experiences the world in a whole different way. It would be easy to look at the vivid array of colour contained in the paintings of artist Conchetta Antico and assume she is using artistic licence. The trunks of her eucalyptus trees are hued with violet and mauve. The yellow crest on her cockatoo has hints of green and blue. The hypercolour of a garden landscape looks almost psychedelic. It's not just an affectation, and it's not artistic license, says Antico. I'm actually painting exactly what I see. If it's a pink flower, and then all of a sudden you see a bit of lilac or blue, I actually saw that. Antico is a tetrachromat, which means she has a fourth colour receptor in her retina, compared with the standard three which most people have. While those of us with three of these receptors, called cone cells, have the ability to distinguish around one million different colours, tetrachromats see an estimated 100 million. Until 10 years ago, Antico says, I didn't know I was not experiencing the world like other people were. For me, the world was just really very colourful. It's kind of like, you don't know you're a zebra unless you're not a zebra. As a child growing up in Sydney, Antico says she was always a little bit out of the box dyeing her hair with bright colours and choosing emerald green carpet and black and lime green curtains for her bedroom. Fascinated with nature, she'd often disappear for an entire day into the land around a nearby golf course. 
I always felt like I was living in a very magical world. I know children say that, but for me it was like everything was hyper-wonderful, hyper-different. I was always exploring into nature, delving and trying to see the intricacies because I'd see so much more detail in everything. Someone else might look at a leaf or a petal on a flower, but for me, it was like a compulsion to really understand it, really see it, and sometimes spend a lot of time on it. And I just wanted to paint and portray everything that I was seeing. After finishing university, Antico moved to the United States where she became an artist and art teacher in San Diego, developing her unique style of colourful landscapes and flora and fauna. Her diagnosis didn't come until 2012, when one of her students, a neurologist, emailed her a scientific paper about tetrachromacy, speculating that this could be what Antico had. A few months earlier, Antico had discovered her daughter was colorblind. I told her she was fine. She was just different and special and amazing, and I'd teach her how to see color anyway. And when she opened the article, one of the first things she read was that women who have potential for tetrachromacy also have potential to create a colorblind female offspring. Antico emailed the scientists who wrote the paper, and within 24 hours I was sending my saliva up to Washington, where testing confirmed she had the genetic mutation responsible for tetrachromacy. According to Dr. Kimberly Jameson, a University of California scientist who has studied Antico, just having the gene, which around 15% of women have, is not alone sufficient to be a tetrachromat, but it's a necessary condition. In Conchetta's case, one thing we believe is that because she's been painting sort of continuously since the age of seven years old, she has really enlisted this extra potential and used it. This is how genetics works. It gives you the potential to do things, and if the environment demands that you do that thing, then the genes kick in. Discovering she saw the world differently to others changed the way Antico taught her students. I became a lot more patient, she says. Say we were down painting a beach. I'd do a lot more of, okay, let's look at this together. Can you see that? And if they'd say no, I'd be like, well, let's look a little closer. When they see it, they will paint it. So my students' paintings became much richer. Through family genetic testing, Antico learned that her mother, who died when she was 12, was also likely to be a tetrachromat. A discovery that helped Antico make sense of her childhood home. Like, she had a red and blue light in the swimming pool in the 60s just to make it violet. Stuff that nobody was doing, really bizarre stuff, and her house was unusual colours. Having supervision, Antico says, brings her enormous happiness. 
I'm so anti-drugs and I'm sure people just think I'm high on something all the time, but I'm really just high on life and the beauty that's around us. I often think to myself, how could you be unhappy in this world? Just go sit in a park. Just go look at a bush or a tree. You can't not appreciate how magnificent it is. While the natural world is a positive stimulant for Antico, many man-made environments, such as a large shopping centre with fluorescent lighting, have the opposite effect. I feel very uneasy. I actually avoid going into those kinds of buildings unless I absolutely have to, she says. I don't enjoy the barrage, the massive onslaught of bits of unattractive colour. I mean, there's a difference between looking at a row of stuff in a grocery store and looking at a row of trees. It's like it's ugly and the lights are garish. It makes me not happy. Now settled in Byron Bay, Antico is teaching less and painting more, wanting to produce even more work than I did before in these final decades of my life. I'm going to keep painting my birds, my animals, my trees. I want to describe what I'm seeing in nature because that's a window, in a way, to things that other people aren't really seeing. That was I'm Just Really High on Life and Beauty. The Woman Who Can See 100 Million Colours by Bronwyn Adcock. The reader was Rochelle Fong. Thanks for listening to the show today. Who knows, maybe you have a superhuman ability too and you just haven't realised it yet. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannan, Ariel Sedario, Rashna Farouk, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. We'll be back with more stories for you next week. See you then.